It's really something to sit back and soak up the magic of a good storyteller. So I have a treat for you today. I believe we can learn so much about ourselves and what makes us tick through exploring the myths and stories of our ancestors. Even more than that, when we can connect to the archetypal wisdom and power in these stories by engaging with them through a whole-bodied experience, a whole new world of possibilities can open to us. Today on the Sensual Alchemy School podcast, I'm beyond thrilled to welcome Jen Murphy to chat all things Celtic embodiment particularly how she personally is informed by her experiences of grief and supported by pleasure, and how she supports others to gain access to their wholeness through her work. Jen Murphy is the creator of Celtic Embodiment, a cutting-edge modality that fuses the ancient wisdom of Celtic mythology with the emerging field of feminine embodiment coaching to transform modern life for women. Jen is a certified feminine embodiment coach and holds a degree in medieval Irish and Celtic studies and an MA in the anthropology of development. Coming from a lineage of storytellers and wisdom keepers on her maternal line, Jen is fascinated by the natural coalescence between our ancestral myths and our bodies as a potent brew to reclaim our sovereign power. Welcome to the Sensual Alchemy School podcast, where we explore grief, pleasure, and the sometimes messy, always beautiful paradox that exists between the two. Here, as we center the experience of our wise bodies through the archetypal feminine, we ask. Within a culture that perceives emotional, intuitive, and creative intelligence as inferior and avoids pain at all costs, what if grief were our compass and pleasure our medicine? My name is Kate Leeper, and I'm so grateful you're here. Now, just before I hit play on this rich conversation with Jen Murphy, I've got some really exciting news to share and an invitation for you. So I've just announced the very first Sensual Alchemy School in-person retreat. It's going to be held in the stunning Noosa hinterland, Queensland, Australia, this year. It's called the Holy Ache Embodied Aliveness Retreat. And it will be held over three nights and four days from the 27th to the 30th of October, 2023. Now, this experience is for you if you're a woman deeply desiring to devote time and space to coming home to your senses, your feminine fullness, and your creative magic in a beautiful, natural environment. And if you found yourself navigating uncertainty or loss recently, or you simply just know that you'd benefit from fully immersing yourself in a long weekend of movement, dance, pleasure, ritual, free expression, and absolute indulgence, then this retreat was made for you. Now, I am a huge advocate for retreat experiences, but especially women-only retreats for the safety and the permission to completely unravel and expand in ways that are just so liberating. So not only will you leave feeling rested and relaxed, 
you'll head home feeling completely re-energized, spacious and enlivened from the tips of your toes to the top of your head. So if the Holy Ache Embodied Aliveness Retreat is calling to you, then trust it because there are only 11 spaces available in our absolutely beautiful luxury accommodation. And the early bird pricing is up now. So if you want to know more or to confirm your place, you can head to katelieper.com slash retreat for everything you need to know and to lock in that early bird payment plan. All right, back to our conversation with Jen. Oh, I'm delighted to share with you just the most beautiful special guest today on the Sensual Alchemy School podcast, a woman whose work I adore and a woman I adore and we've never met, (laughs) but it really does feel like uh, I can call you a friend, the beautiful Jen Murphy from the School of Celtic Embodiment. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Kate. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's so, so nice to drop into a space where I can, I suppose, get to know you a little bit better as well and really share your beautiful work with everyone perhaps through a slightly different lens. You know, we talk about grief and pleasure and how ultimately embodying the fullness of these human experiences can really support us in our creative leadership, in our feminine leadership. And so your work, uh, you know, spans across all of this so wonderfully. But before we really dive in to the depths, I am hoping that you'll indulge me with just a couple of questions around how you're feeling right here, right now. Does that sound okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Jen. So I'm curious if you were to just tune into your body right now, what sense of loss feels present in you? Yeah, such a beautiful question and such a tender question. Um, I suppose what really feels present for me around loss at the moment um. And it's something that is not my own, you know, in a sense. Um, What I'm feeling at the moment is around displacement. So displacement is the, you know, forced movement of people, um, you know, from their homes because of a life-threatening situation. So, for example, like a natural disaster. So I'm looking at what is happening in Syria and Turkey at the moment with the earthquake and just the absolute gut-wrenching devastation of that, you know, like that. I mean, I'm not equipped to put into words, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's not my lived experience. But it's kind of got me reflecting on before I founded the Celtic School of Embodiment, I worked in global justice and human rights for 14 years. And during that time, I traveled to many countries. And the last country I 
went to before I left that career was uh, the Syrian borders. So to uh, the Becca Valley, um, you know, in Lebanon. And there I spent time with people who were living as refugees across the border. And, you know, not only when something like this happens, when people are displaced, not only, you know, have you to deal with the huge psychological trauma of the event, but it causes a deep rupture to mm. the cultural psyche and to the, the mythological roots, like the stories of the people. And I remember like one day I was in, you know, this kind of makeshift school and the teacher there was a Syrian man, a refugee. And he was telling me that, you know, he had drawn a map of Syria on the board and he'd asked the children, many of them born in this camp, you know, what like, what the image represented. And most of them said a piano. And that actually caused him huge grief because mm. he was like, no, that's our country. That's where we're from, you know, and the culture and the stories. And you could literally see the road to Damascus over the mountains from where we were, you know. Wow. So like this sense of loss and displacement is coming into my work now in a way I had never imagined um, around the idea of what I call mythological displacement. So mm -hmm. where people are displaced from, you know, they're or moved away from their mythical roots, from the mythology of their ancestors. And if you look at Irish, you know, history, right, um, you know, because obviously Ireland is my own lineage, you know, during the on Goethe Moor, the great hunger, the great famine in the 1840s, we had you know, over a million people die, you know, on a tiny mm -hmm. island and then, you know, a million to two million people displaced, right, and forced to flee, um, you know, to the likes of where you are in Australia and then, you know, to like North America as well. And, you know, what we see there with that loss is that people did bring some of the traditions. So a clear example of that is, you know, Samhain, which became Halloween, right? Samhain is an Irish tradition that's now known as Halloween. But as the generations pass by, Kate, you know, um, and perhaps, you know, you're aware of this yourself or have felt this as the generations pass by, the connection to the lineage, to mm -hmm. the mythology, to the stories of the ancestors often, yeah, it just starts to dissipate. And you know, 80% of my clients are, you know, outside of Ireland, right, of Irish, you know, or wider Celtic heritage. Right. And when they come to me, like what I'm seeing is, you know, just this deep sense of disconnection mm -hmm. from the lineage, obviously the intergenerational trauma and grief, you know, it's almost like a ghost of loss haunts mm -hmm. them, you know, and like they just yeah, have a sense that they don't know who they truly are. And then this can result in things like, you know, looking to other cultures, even appropriating from other cultures right. because yeah. of the loss, because of the grief, you know, within. So, yeah, like that legacy is really present for me at the moment. You know, mm -hmm. I've only started to make that connection from displacement as a technical humanitarian term to you know, in the Irish context, 150 or more years later, and you're seeing, oh my God, the impact of grief and trauma yeah. 
and that disconnection um, coming through in a different way. Oh, yes. Yes to all of that. And I'm so thankful that you brought to light how grief can, you know, can be rippling through you and be present in you without having been impacted by a a specific, sorry, event. Um, But that this collective sense of grief is just there. It is in your heart. It is in your bones. And, you know, you've, you've mentioned um, that that has, I guess, been activated in you in terms of the Syrian crisis and, and, and experiences that are happening so far away from you in Ireland, Mm -hmm. but yet here, here's the thread that has connected your own felt sense of cultural collective grief that lives within you. And wow. I mean, that is huge, isn't it? When people get, get a sense of that. And, and all of a sudden, I feel like when we hear those stories, our bodies respond with knowing I've certainly experienced that, you know, just hearing you speak, I have, um, I have a lot of Irish ancestry and I've been to Ireland once and really only just kind of seen the tip of, of what I, yeah, what I hope to one day, but this longing. And I guess that's my next question, Jen, and often that is really connected to loss, this longing in me to return and to see more and feel more and soak it in is just so strong. And I know that that is connected to my own sense of loss. So I wonder if for you, you can um, identify a longing that lives within you at the moment that maybe it's the same, maybe it's different. What do you feel? Yeah. So like the longing within me, um, and it comes from my connection to other people, you know, like to, to my work, right. To working with people who aren't on the land as well, right. You can't actually be in the vibration of Ireland that you've, Mm -hmm. um, that you've, um, felt yourself, you know, so this kind of longing, um, that comes through, um, you know, is this idea of the body as a place, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that the body is a place that, holds ancestral memory you know like we know now through like new studies in epigenetics and you know cell memory that we can inherit trauma and intergenerationally but I also feel that through the body as a place that we can inherit mythical memory so like you said there right that you can feel it like you can feel those stories in your body you know, mm-hmm. that there's an actual felt sense reaction, you know, to that. And so something that supports that longing within me and within, you know, the women that I work with um, is like a practice or multiple practices that I love to do around dropping story into the body. So like, just to give an example, my favorite practice at the moment, I call this sovereignty goddess and the king, right? So just the inner feminine and masculine so it's non-linear movement so I'm on all fours and I might drop 
So, you know, in this guided practice, it asks you to drop into your body firstly a sovereignty goddess as an expression of the feminine. So I might say inviting Fleish, right? Fleish is, I see her as a horned goddess. So Fleish is deeply um, associated with uh, deer in Ireland. And she also has this magical cow called Moel, and um, which is this really milky, abundant, you know, pleasurable cow, right? So I'd invite in Fleish into my body and then maybe a king. So like Nuada, who is this king of the Tuatha Dé Danann, who's Ireland's supernatural race. And he's a very discerning, very noble king. And I'm using those archetypes then to activate my inner feminine and masculine and to make decisions on how to move through my day or whatever is present in my body at that time by using their stories in the body, you know. And like I tried to look up, you know, research to see is there anything around story and the body? And there isn't really, but there is in neuroscience, you know, mm. um, evidence that the that stories change the physiology of the body. So like right. if you're, you know, experiencing and, and you know, I know you've you've likely felt this, but like when you resonate with a character in a story, when you resonate with an archetype. Um, it produces oxytocin. So it mm-hmm. produces, you know, the love hormone and that kind of pleasure. It actually produces pleasure in the body. So, yeah. So that kind of play between, you know, the body as a place that we can drop these mythical stories in and, you know, move with them, you know, fusing them with our own life stories is something that uh, helps me meet that longing. Yeah. Within. Oh, I adore this so much. I mean, Working with archetypes is something that I have always, always been drawn to. And I love how you work with archetypes as well. And through the accessing the, the mythical lineage that you speak to as well, because that is just so very potent. And I you know what I love about what you're sharing here as when when you refer to the body as a place. And also the body as a site in which to explore story is that when we play, and ultimately this is how I interpret this kind of embodied exploration is play because there's no outcome attached. You know, we're dropping into the flavors and the textures of these archetypes, these gods, these goddesses, these mythical um deep, wonderful uh, archetypal figures that really can lend themselves to so much possibility, you know, and just like, it's like choose your own adventure, except we're not actively engaging our intellect. As you say, we're letting the body really just connect. And I think that's that oxytocin piece too, right? It's this sense of connection with, oh, this character, this archetype, this energy, there's something that feels like home for me in this, whoever it might be. Right. And, and so in that sense of, um, connection to the archetype, we can just let ourselves be free and play into like, what, who might I be if I, played with this desire? Who might I be if I moved through this um, challenge through unraveling my body? 
in this archetypal energy. That I think is um, really exciting when we can move embodiment into that kind of realm. So as you can tell, I could geek out about this for a while. But yeah, thank you for sharing those really specific invitations that that you use um, in your work. It's really cool. No, thank you, Kate. And yeah, everything that you just said resonates so, so deeply. It's 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 beyond words because it's just visceral, mm-hmm. you know, it's just it's so powerful, you know, and it's so deeply rooting and anchoring for the body, for the nervous system. You know, it just like and, and the most common thing that I actually hear, you know, uh, with women in relation to, you know, dropping story into the body is I finally come home. That's it. It's like you said, home, you know, I feel like I've come home. Yeah, that's right. And when we're, I know that in my work with grief embodiment, that sense of missing something that, and of course it's, uh, it serves to be, to remind people that when we're exploring grief, it doesn't have to be a specific loss. A lot of the time, just as we discussed earlier, this grief can be complicated. It can be um, disenfranchised from us. We we don't even know what the grief is that we're feeling, right? We can just literally feel not at home in our own body. And so coming home and being found by ourselves is an enormously healing um, opportunity when it comes to our own losses and and yeah, a wholeness essentially. So I'd love to know for you, Jen. Obviously, these practices have been really significant um, for your clients, for those people that you serve. For you personally, on your own leadership journey, as you've really come to claim this incredible body of work that you offer at the Celtic School of Embodiment, what I suppose specific role, and I mean, maybe it's not, maybe it feels a little bit blurry and nebulous to you, but can you really identify? how your own leadership has been refined and deepened and matured as you've navigated your own grief in your life? Yeah, that's such a brilliant question, you know, around, yeah, like, because ultimately my work is founded on familial grief, you know, Um, like the Celtic School of Embodiment, I feel would never have come to fruition if it wasn't for my grandmother and my grandmother's grief, essentially. So my grandmother's name was Frances O'Sullivan. And, you know, um, she experienced grave loss in her life. Um, In 1960, my granddad, who uh, was 37 at the time, you know, passed away after a long illness, you know, motor neuron disease. And the same week, it was Christmas week, the same week Francis's 
sister Noelle died in childbirth and the baby, uh, her little babe with her as well. So just mm. absolute immense loss. Um, my, my mother remembers because Frances came from a lineage of storytellers that, you know, she's left on her own now with seven kids to raise, you know, under the age of 10, right? Oh, under wow. the age of 10. <laughs> so um, yeah, lots of Irish twins there. So <laughs> he, she basically, um, like my mother remembers that she used to, to keep the family together. She used to, you know, invite the children to ask their friends in off the road or whatever. And she'd tell stories. She'd sit them around by the fire and tell stories. And this was a way of keeping the family together as they navigate, navigated grief, you know? And so that kind of sense of, you know, loss of the importance of story to meet and navigate loss um, has definitely influenced me as a leader, you know. And even recently, um, I did some work with a beautiful friend of mine who is a band Gluna and midwife Sarah Richardson. And we decided to hold um, kind of, you know, um, about a live event, like an in-person event and an online training around mm. the banshee, More. you know, around, yeah, yeah, around an archetype that people are terrified of, right. you know, um, <laughs> Yeah, and maybe you, you've heard of the Banshee yourself. Well, yes, but I mean, probably in ways that are wildly inaccurate, right? The Banshee <laughs> is always like described as a, a hysterical, frightening woman that is just out of control. And so if you're called a Banshee, it's certainly not mm-hmm. um, a compliment, I would say, in our patriarchal society. So I would love to learn more and probably more accurately about the Banshee from you, Jen. Yeah. So, so that stereotype is there. Absolutely. You know, and it's, uh, and it was interesting when we did the, 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 one of the events, a woman shared that she's been called a Banshee in a derogatory kind of fashion, mm-hmm. speaking to what, what you just spoke to there. So Banshee comes from, um, so the Irish word for a woman is ban, right? So that's mm-hmm. the start of it. Right. And then she means, um, it's difficult to translate into English, but it ultimately means of the hollow hills, of the mounds. It's literally the other world, right? Where our supernatural race, the Tuatha de Danann lives. So, you know, banshee means otherworldly woman or fairy woman. But as most people know, um, she's no ordinary fairy woman. She's our supernatural uh, death messenger. And actually, when my grandfather, Christy, died, you know, my grandmother and my mother claim that they hear the banshee, you know, wail and lament for him before he passed. Um, His surname was O'Sullivan, so O'Sullivan in Gaelga. And the Banshee is said to, to follow um, his family. Um, she follows, you know, many old Gaelic clans, right? And this is, is not for a terrifying reason. This is actually for a more noble reason. But just to kind of give a sense of the Banshee, so like what she was doing there, you know, in terms of her keening, her lamenting, her crying. Um, keening comes from the Irish word queena. Right, which means to cry, to lament, you know. And so she, what she does on behalf of someone as they're passing is she keens for them. She cries to prophesize um, the death 
And it's a very old idea. Like, you know, we've just gone through um, celebrating the goddess Bridget, goddess and Saint Bridget. We had our first national holiday mm. ever in Ireland. Wow. Yeah. In honor of the goddess. And Bridget is actually said to be the first woman to keen in Ireland. So her son Ruadon dies in conflict and she keens, she grieves for him, you know, like the banshee. And um, it said that by keening, she creates a whistling to signal by night. Okay, so that's the sense mm-hmm. of grief as a whistling to signal by night, which is just so poetic. But the banshee, so there's kind of a very early expression of the banshee in the goddess uh, bridge. And you also see her as what's called the ban knee. Uh, knee means to wash, right? So washerwoman. Um, this is more common in the Scottish tradition, but in the mythology, often you see the washer at the ford, right? So it's this woman who's keening, she's crying, and she's washing the blood from the linen, okay? So she's washing the blood from clothes. So if a warrior comes across her and sees her, the warrior knows you know, particularly, um, you know, a male warrior knows that he's going to die in battle, right? Because she's mm-hmm. prophesizing his death. Um, but she's a really interesting archetype because, you know, she is always a woman, right? Mm-hmm. You know, she's always a woman. And this is because women in Irish mythology are like the intermediaries between this world and the other world. So it makes sense that a woman is going to lament and show you that it's your time to go from this world to the other world, you know, um, like there's even one of the words for other world in Irish is Tiernaman, which means land of women. Right. So that's just to give you a sense of the, 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 the power of the feminine and, you know, the other world. But yeah, like, you know, it's very interesting when you look at her as a solitary archetype, because it's almost like, you know, we we need her because we live in an island that has a grave history of trauma, right? So we need the banshee. That's why she follows old Gaelic clans, right? Because, you know, if you think about like under English rule, you know, there was forced assimilation and people were trying to hold on to the culture, right? So mm-hmm. she's following Gaelic families, right? To hold on to the culture. So there's all of this grief, even the famine, everything, you know, wrapped up in the banshee, she holds our grief. And yet we're terrified of her, right? That's mm-hmm. where all the terror comes from because we're terrified of our own grief and our right. own trauma. Wow. Wow. My gosh, that is just so rich. There is so much to that, but you've just, <laughs> you've just brought it home there, right? We are so terrified of anything that feels out of control that feels wild and and as if it may not end or we can't, you know, we can't polish it up, we can't make it uh, palatable, and that is grief. That is the banshee. That is just so very fascinating. Thank you for sharing yeah. all of that. That's just so amazing. Wow. I'm curious too, Jen, because I... I always love to flip the script, (laughs) I guess, a little bit. And at Central Alchemy School, yes, 
we we work with grief and we also work with pleasure and we understand pleasure as this incredible resource for our bodies and and when we redefine what pleasure is outside of the constructs in which we've been taught and then learn to access our own pleasure, it can just uh, be so supportive to our systems and really allow us to meet the world even whilst carrying the burden of grief and, and really find this sense of aliveness. And so in your work and and your leadership and your creativity, what role does pleasure play and how important do you feel it is as you kind of weave this this relationship between the story, stories and, and the body and, um, yeah, all of this, all the things. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So, so pleasure, there's a lot on pleasure actually in Irish mythology. Um, it's, yeah, there's just so many, um, really fascinating tales around women owning their pleasure unapologetically, right? Mm -hmm. But there is a really interesting story that shows, um, grief and pleasure at play in one, uh, you know, like at once. Um, so I might just share a little bit about that story because yeah. it's coming up for me now. So I'll preface this by saying, right, there's this old Irish term called a guilt, right? Uh, the Irish language is a very poetic language. And when you translate something, it never translates um, in like a singular word. So a guilt, I actually have it uh, written down here. A guilt means one who goes mad from terror, a panic stricken fugitive from battle, a crazy person living in the woods and supposed to be endowed with the power of levitation, a lunatic, right? So that's, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's not just one word, right? It's always a really elaborate. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's a great story, um, of a guilt in action, right? And her name is Mish, right? So there's this story of, um, so her story basically starts where her father comes on conquest to Ireland. Her father is called Dara, right? And they arrive in the southwest of Ireland in Kerry and they do battle. And basically her father is killed on the battlefield, right? So Mish herself is, she's his only daughter. And so she is like waging her way through the slaughter and she comes to her father's body, right? Who is mortally wounded. And she sees all the blood pouring from, from him. So she starts to, you know, drink and lick his blood, almost like to stop it, you know, to, mm. to almost stop the bleeding uh, in a sense. And with her grief then comes this big fever of lunacy, right? And she basically grows whiskers in that moment, grows hair that literally trails behind her. Her fingers grow nails that curl and her toenails as well that could literally rip someone to shreds. And then she levitates, right? Because the guilt usually levitates and she flies off then into uh, Schlieve Mish. Uh, so Schlieve Mish means Mish's Mountain. It's actually a mountain in County Kerry. So she's living then in the mountain and she begins a reign of terror, right? So she's terrorizing the locals. Anyone who comes near her, she just rips them to shreds, you know, like literally causing loads of problems. And the king at the time, King Phelemy, um, 
you know, decides to put up a reward to bring Mish back, right, from um, this form of a gelt. And he doesn't want to kill her. He wants to bring her back, which I think is very interesting if you look at it from like kind of an inner, you know, uh, kind of somatic or embodiment or, you know, even young and depth psychology here, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at like, we don't want to kill the wild feminine, We want to let her, you know, have her expression. But once that's complete, that grief, we need to bring her back. We need to reintegrate her, right? And pleasure can be a way to do that. So anyway, a few warriors respond to, you know, the the, the kind of requests of the king and off they go and she just like shreds them, right? And then this... um, this beautiful harpist called Dovrish, like a really gentle man, comes to King Phelamine. He says, yeah, I'll go and I'll bring Mish back. And everybody laughs because they're like, how are you going to do this? Like with your music or whatever, right? You're not a warrior. And he just says, well, I'm, I'll go, right? So like, yeah, fine, off you go. Expecting him to, you know, mm-hmm. not last a day. And so what he does is he goes to where Mish is and he lays himself out and he lays himself out naked with his harp and then with just some nice kind of, you know, pleasurable kind of um, foods and whatever around him. And so she comes out of the woods and she sees him and she's really curious. She's like, oh, hang on, you know, what's <laughs> who is this man here? Hello. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> naked man with the harp, you know? (laughs) Right. And so what happens then over time is he plays music to her. Eventually they make love. And then she goes off into the forest to get them some food. She comes back like with a deer hanging out of her mouth, like that she expects them to eat raw. And he's like, no, you know, and he skins the deer with her. He shows her how to cook, how to boil it. And then he uses the deer fat to really um, tend to her. So he massages her body, like, you know, her joints, he brushes her hair and he just over a long period of time really tends to her pleasure body, Mm. you know, as a way to kind of bring her back. So if you can see this almost like the inner masculine and feminine, like the animus and anima at play, that beautiful divine masculine energy just to the feminine to help that wild woman you know that's so necessary as well but to help mm-hmm. the group integrate and right. yeah it's all done through pleasure so I just think that story is a beautiful example of you know in our mythology of grief and then of pleasure as a way to you know to still be with the grief and mm-hmm. honor it you know mm-hmm but to support that reintegration into, you know, our sense of self then, you know, that we're not just like Mish no longer is just identified with the grief, you Mm -hmm. know, grief isn't her single identifier in her life. She now has pleasure. Yeah. And I'm also hearing that the pleasure, it, it was, I guess the invitation there was actually very slow and gentle and safety oriented, right? And so to to be able to soften the wild and and the the unruly grief and just the turmoil and the turbulence of that expression, like you said, she came out, there was a curiosity there because there was this gentle invitation. There was this like, uh, this energy of of safety and no pressure and I will care for you. And 
I really just felt that so strongly in that story, which I can deeply relate to because I think sometimes the paradox, well, I like to to call the grief and pleasure paradox that can feel, I guess, if we, if we um, refer to it within the cultural, through the cultural lens, it's like, hold on, these different states are so far away from one of each other, from each other. How could they possibly have anything to do with each other or support each other? It's, it's exactly the, you know, that it's a spectrum, right? And, and grief and pleasure in my experience and with the women that I work with, it's like there's this bridge between it that over time can be cultivated. And so much of it relies on safety and slowness and gentleness and um, this whole reorientation towards the body as an ally as opposed to an enemy and grief as as something that can be befriended as opposed to shut away or you know as as just this terrifying kind of um overwhelming experience yeah so much in that story yeah i love that perspective because if you think about it like in the story many warriors go Mm -hmm. you know and they're going with that like almost to the brief come on now you know Mm, like like aggressively yeah 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 enough like enough come Mm -hmm. down from the mountain Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like a lack of a tolerance Mm -hmm. for the grief you know whereas Dovrish knows that actually and he spends the time with her you know that happens over a good period of time before he brings her down with him from the mountain and it's her desire you know, it's her desire to integrate because, you know, if she didn't want to, she would have just killed him, you know? Totally. So yeah, 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 that's right. And so that desire and that sense of, and that spark of aliveness of like, oh, this touch feels good. It feels safe. It feels nice. I'm being nourished by goodness, you know, food and love and all of these things that that really allow us to feel alive. And, you know, grief can absolutely send us to the depths of numbness and disassociation and and the opposite of aliveness. So I just appreciate that story so much. I think there's so much metaphor in there for really um, yeah, the work that I'm so passionate about. I just love that we've found this really interesting common ground. And yet the way that, yeah, that you work with it is just so different and, and through mythology and these incredible stories, so much can be highlighted in our own lived experience and in, in the culture's wider experience as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It really is the power of the story and that's why they speak to you know mythology often speaks to universal themes you know like grief and pleasure yeah yeah I really love it Jen and I'm so grateful um that you've shared your time today and shared so many stories I feel like you've been able to weave so many stories into everything that um, I've spoken to I wonder is there something else that's sitting with you um, that you would like to share with everybody listening particularly around what you're offering right now and your work what's really lighting you up I know you do have 
um, the work around the ban- the banshee and um, so much more. So yeah, what's kind of feeling super ripe and exciting for you that you'd like to share? Yeah. So thank you. Um, yeah. For, for, for facilitating that opportunity um, to share about my work. So I guess something that's really enlivening me at the moment is I started a leadership program in Sewen, you know, so in November of last year called the Sovereignty Goddess Incubator. And it really is about exploring kind of feminine leadership from a mythical dimension, you know, because often like in leadership, as you know, I know you're well familiar, like the feminine is completely left out or paid a little bit of lip service to, but ultimately the feminine is seen as, you know, um, like not worthy or unprofessional almost in leadership. Mm -hmm. So this kind of program is around like anchoring in the feminine lineage that Mm. is ours while not negating the the masculine right it is about integrating the sovereignty goddess and the king and looking at you know how even we partner with the other world for our businesses so like you know as a leader i don't believe that the celtic school of embodiment is me it's a separate energy to Mm -hmm. me you know that can be supported and fueled by my connection to the other world so yeah it's really exciting and you know I have a beautiful group of women and yeah we're just throwing all of these different kind of ingredients into the cauldron and something really exciting is coming out of it you know I feel like yeah real change is coming and just there's been such a liberation for women in the program as well. And there's only a very small group of us. Um, but just to, yeah, to see that it doesn't have to be, you know, this way as mm-hmm. such, you know, we don't have to, you know, follow what is prescribed for us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that feels really present for me in my work at the moment. Leadership mm. from, you know, a feminine place that's rooted in your mythical lineage. Yeah. It's so unique and and it really is exciting. I love hearing about all of these different ways that we can explore who we are as leaders, right? Through I mean, that there's so much depth there. And that I think is really exciting territory when we get to redefine leadership through this feminine lens, through really knowing ourselves, the depth of ourselves and be really given this free reign to just rewrite the script and to begin to, as you've just alluded to, really access these parts of ourselves that have otherwise been shunned and yeah, relegated to domesticity and, um, you know, the support role and really just finally understanding that, hold on, there is so much power here in my creative expression when it's untapped that Mm. I imagine, you know, through your work, you're just witnessing these women immersed in their own um, mythological kind of excavation, just really meeting all of this fascinating just the potential that is coming through because otherwise they wouldn't, right? If it's like, 
I guess, more traditional leadership models, they don't, it's so linear, it's so prescribed, it's so like formulaic and strategic. And um, you, I just feel like you just miss out on so much. And we're really at a time in history, I imagine you'll agree, where we actually really need a major um yeah, we, we need to shake things up as far as leadership goes. And so I am just all for these incredible opportunities for women to just know themselves and to reinvent what leadership can look and feel like. Congratulations mm. on that. <laughs> oh, thank you. And having that reflected back, oh, just feels divine so in the body. You articulated it so beautifully. Thank you, Kate. Mm, my absolute pleasure. And yeah, I have no doubt that the women who are just being attracted to your realm and just really called into your work are just benefiting so greatly. I mean, I just feel so fortunate that we've had a chance to connect a number of times and uh, you, know, you taught for Luminous, my uh, creative feminine leadership program last year. And it was just so, so beautiful and such an incredible invitation into, yeah, just such a vast new landscape. Um, for women to explore. So thank you, Jen, for coming and just sharing your magic and um, really giving us a taste of this whole other world um, that, that we can access when it comes to our, not just our cultural lineage, but our mythological lineage as well, which I'm just really keen to dive into myself. So <laughs> thank you so, so much. Thank you. And, you know, everything you say to me is mirrored back to you as well, Kate. You know, your work is just so phenomenal, so inspiring. And you are land shaping. You are creating new land with your work, you know. And I have seen the women who work with you as well. And, yeah, just what a privilege, what a privilege and a transformation uh, for them. So deep bow oh to you as well. <laughs> Well, thank you, Jen. It's uh, it's pretty cool to be in this community of uh, of women doing amazing things with embodiment. So, I really appreciate you saying that. And I will be sharing in the show notes um, a heap of links that you can um, go and dive deeper into Jen's work as well, and the various courses that you have on offer and opportunities. So, definitely go ahead and check that out. Um, Jen, can we find you on Instagram as well? Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm at Celtic Embodiment. Perfect. Amazing. All right, Jen. Well, thank you so much again. It's been an absolute pleasure and yeah, just wishing you all the best. Thank you, my love. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today on the Sensual Alchemy School podcast. If you found this episode supportive or something landed for you here, please share it with your friends, family, and anyone who you feel might benefit. If you're loving this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to ensure that we can keep bringing you the conversations you need. And if you want to connect, please find me at kateleeper.com or over on Instagram at kate.leeper. I'd love to hear from you.